1: Section thirty one of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Door in the Wall. Part one. One confidential evening, not three months ago, Lionel Wallace told me this story of the Door in the Wall, and at the time I thought that, so far as he was concerned, it was a true story. He told it me with such a direct simplicity of conviction that I could not do otherwise than believe in him. But in the morning, in my own flat, I woke to a different atmosphere, and as I lay in bed and recalled the things he had told me, stripped of the glamour of his earnest, slow voice, denuded of the focused, shaded table-light, the shadowy atmosphere that wrapped around him and me and the pleasant bright things, the dessert and glasses, and napery of the dinner we had shared, making them for a time a bright little world quite cut off from everyday realities, I saw it all as frankly incredible. "'He was mystifying,' I said, and then, "'how well he did it! It isn't quite the thing I should have expected him, of all people, to do well.' Afterwards, as I sat up in bed and sipped my morning tea, I found myself trying to account for the flavor of reality that perplexed me in his impossible reminiscences by supposing they did in some way suggest, present, convey. I hardly know which word to use. Experiences it was otherwise impossible to tell. Well, I don't resort to that explanation now i have got over my intervening doubts i believe now as i believed at the moment of telling that wallace did to the very best of his ability strip the truth of his secret for me but whether he himself saw or only thought he saw whether he himself was the possessor of an inestimable privilege or the victim of a fantastic dream i cannot pretend to guess even the facts of his death which ended my doubts for ever, throw no light on that. That much the reader must judge for himself. I forget now what chance comment or criticism of mine moved so reticent a man to confide in me. He was, I think, defending himself against an imputation of slackness and unreliability I had made in relation to a great public movement in which he had disappointed me. But he plunged suddenly. "'I have,' he said, "'a preoccupation. "'I know,' he went on after a pause,
0: "'I have
1: been negligent. "'The fact is, it isn't a case of ghosts or apparitions, "'but it's an odd thing to tell of, Redmond. "'I am haunted. "'I am haunted by something that rather takes a light out of things, "'that fills me with longings.' "'He paused.' checked by that English shyness that so often overcomes us when we would speak of moving or grave or beautiful things. "'You were at St. Athelstan's all through,' he said, "'and for a moment that seemed to me quite irrelevant.' "'Well,' and he paused. Then, very haltingly at first, but afterwards more easily, he began to tell of the thing that was hidden in his life.' the haunting memory of a beauty and a happiness that filled his heart with insatiable longings that made all the interests and spectacle of worldly life seem dull and tedious and vain to him now that i have the clue to it the thing seems written visibly in his face i have a photograph in which that look of detachment has been caught and intensified It reminds me of what a woman once said of him, a woman who had loved him greatly. "'Suddenly,' she said, "'the interest goes out of him. He forgets you. He doesn't care a rap for you, under his very nose.' Yet the interest was not always out of him, and when he was holding his attention to a thing, Wallace could contrive to be an extremely successful man." His career, indeed, is set with successes. He left me behind him long ago. He soared up over my head and cut a figure in the world that I couldn't cut anyhow. He was still a year short of 40, and they say now that he would have been in office and very probably in the new cabinet if he had lived. At school he always beat me without effort, as it were by nature, We were at school together at St. Athelstan's College in West Kensington for almost all our school time. He came into the school as my co-equal, but he left, far above me, in a blaze of scholarships and brilliant performance. Yet I think I made a fair average running, and it was at school I heard first of the door in the wall that I was to hear of a second time only a month before his death. To him at least— The door in the wall was a real door, leading through a real wall to immortal realities. Of that I am now quite assured. And it came into his life quite early, when he was a little fellow between five and six. I remember how, as he sat making his confession to me with a slow gravity, he reasoned and reckoned with the date of it. There was, he said, a crimson Virginia creeper in it, all one bright uniform crimson in a clear amber sunshine against a white wall that came into the impression somehow though i don't clearly remember how and there were horse chestnut leaves upon the clean pavement outside the green door they were blotched yellow and green you know not brown nor dirty so that they must have been new fallen i take it that means october I look out for horse-chestnut leaves every year, and I ought to know. If I'm right in that, I was about five years and four months old. He was, he said, rather a precocious little boy. He learned to talk at an abnormally early age, and he was so sane and old-fashioned, as people say, that he was permitted an amount of initiative that most children scarcely attain by seven or eight his mother died when he was two and he was under the less vigilant and authoritative care of a nursery governess his father was a stern preoccupied lawyer who gave him little attention and expected great things of him for all his brightness he found life a little grey and dull i think and one day he wandered. he could not recall the particular neglect that enabled him to get away nor the course he took among the west kensington roads all that had faded among the incurable blurs of memory but the white wall and the green door stood out quite distinctly as his memory of that childish experience ran he did at the very first sight of that door experience a peculiar emotion an attraction a desire to get to the door and open it and walk in and at the same time he had the clearest conviction that either it was unwise or it was wrong of him he could not tell which to yield to this attraction he insisted upon it as a curious thing that he knew from the very beginning unless memory has played him the queerest trick that the door was unfastened and that he could go in as he chose i seemed to see the figure of that little boy drawn and repelled, and it was very clear in his mind too, though why it should be so was never explained, that his father would be very angry if he went in through that door. Wallace described all these moments of hesitation to me with the utmost particularity. He went right past the door, and then, with his hands in his pockets, and making an infantile attempt to whistle, strolled right along beyond the end of the wall. There he recalls a number of mean, dirty shops, and particularly that of a plumber and decorator, with a dusty disorder of earthenware pipes, sheet lead, ball taps, pattern books of wallpaper, and tins of enamel. He stood, pretending to examine these things, and coveting, passionately desiring, the green door. Then, he said, he had a gust of emotion, he made a run for it, Lest hesitation should grip him again, he went plump with the outstretched hand through the green door and let it slam behind him. And so, in a trice, he came into the garden that has haunted all his life. It was very difficult for Wallace to give me his full sense of that garden into which he came. There was something in the very air of it that exhilarated, that gave one a sense of lightness and good happening and well-being. There was something in the sight of it that made all its colour clean and perfect, and subtly luminous. In the instant of coming into it, one was exquisitely glad, as only in rare moments, and when one is young and joyful, one can be glad in this world and everything was beautiful there wallace mused before he went on telling me you see he said with the doubtful inflection of a man who pauses at incredible things there were two great panthers there yes spotted panthers and i was not afraid there was a long wide path with marble edged flower borders on either side and these two huge velvety beasts were playing there with a ball one looked up and came towards me a little curious as it seemed it came right up to me rubbed its soft round ear very gently against the small hand i held out and purred it was i tell you an enchanted garden i know and the size oh it stretched far and wide this way and that I believe there were hills far away. Heaven knows where West Kensington had suddenly got to. And somehow it was just like coming home. You know, in the very moment the door swung to behind me, I forgot the road with its fallen chestnut leaves, its cabs and tradesmen's carts. I forgot the sort of gravitational pull back to the discipline and obedience of home. I forgot all hesitations and fear. "'forgot discretion, forgot all the intimate realities of this life. "'I became, in a moment, a very glad and wonder-happy little boy. "'In another world, it was a world with a different quality, "'a warmer, more penetrating and mellower light, "'with a faint, clear gladness in its air "'and wisps of sun-touched cloud in the blueness of its sky.' and before me ran this long, wide path, invitingly, with weedless beds on either side, rich with untended flowers, and these two great panthers. I put my little hands fearlessly on their soft fur, and caressed their round ears, and the sensitive corners under their ears, and played with them, and it was as though they welcomed me home. There was a keen sense of homecoming in my mind, And when presently a tall, fair girl appeared in the pathway, and came to meet me, smiling, and said, well, to me, and lifted me, and kissed me, and put me down, and led me by the hand, there was no amazement, but only an impression of delightful rightness, of being reminded of happy things that had, in some strange way, been overlooked, there were Broad red steps, I remember, that came into view between spikes of delphinium, and up these we went to a great avenue between very old and shady dark trees. All down this avenue, you know, between the red chapped stems, were marble seats of honour and statuary and very tame and friendly white doves. Along this cool avenue my girlfriend led me, Looking down, I recall the pleasant lines, the finely-modelled chin of her sweet, kind face, asking me questions in a soft, agreeable voice, and telling me things, pleasant things, I know, though what they were, I was never able to recall. Presently a little capuchin monkey, very clean, with a fur of ruddy brown and kindly hazel eyes, came down a tree to us and ran beside me looking up at me and grinning and presently leapt to my shoulder so we two went on our way in great happiness he paused go on i said i remember little things we passed an old man musing among laurels i remember and a place gay with parakeets and came through a broad shaded colonnade to a spacious cool palace full of pleasant fountains, full of beautiful things, full of the quality and promise of heart's desire. And there were many things and many people, some that still seem to stand out clearly, and some that are a little vague. But all these people were beautiful and kind, in some way, I don't know how. It was conveyed to me that they all were kind to me, glad to have me there and filling me with gladness by their gestures, by the touch of their hands, by the welcome and love in their eyes. Yes, he mused for a while. Playmates I found there. That was very much to me because I was a lonely little boy. They played delightful games in a grass-covered court, where there was a sundial set about with flowers, and as one played, one loved... But... It's odd, there's a gap in my memory. I don't remember the games we played, I never remembered. Afterwards, as a child, I spent long hours trying, even with tears, to recall the form of that happiness. I wanted to play it all over again, in my nursery by myself. No, all I remember is the happiness, and two dear playfellows who were most with me. Then presently came a somber, dark woman with a grave, pale face and dreamy eyes, a somber woman wearing a soft, long robe of pale purple, who carried a book and beckoned, and took me aside with her into a gallery above a hall, though my playmates were loath to have me go, and ceased their game, and stood watching as I was carried away. "'Come back to us!' they cried. "'Come back to us soon!' I looked up at her face, but she heeded them not at all. Her face was very gentle and grave. She took me to a seat in the gallery, and I stood beside her, ready to look at her book as she opened it upon her knee. The pages fell open. She pointed, and I looked, marvelling, for in the living pages of that book I saw myself. It was a story about myself and in it were all the things that had happened to me since ever I was born. It was wonderful to me, because the pages of that book were not pictures, you understand, but realities. Wallace paused gravely, looked at me doubtfully. "'Go on,' I said. "'I understand. They were realities. Yes, they must have been. People moved, and things came and went in them. My dear mother, whom I had near forgotten— then my father, stern and upright, the servants, the nursery, all the familiar things of home, then the front door and the busy streets, with traffic to and fro. I looked and marveled, and looked half doubtfully again, into the woman's face, and turned the pages over, skipping this and that, to see more of this book and more, and so, at last, I came to myself, hovering and hesitating, outside the green door in the long white wall, and felt again the conflict and the fear. "'And next!' I cried, and would have turned on, but the cool hand of the grave woman delayed me. "'Next!' I insisted, and struggled gently with her hand, pulling up her fingers with all my childish strength, and as she yielded, and the page came over, she bent down upon me like a shadow, and kissed my brow.' But the page did not show the enchanted garden, nor the panthers, nor the girl who had led me by the hand, nor the playfellows who had been so loath to let me go. It showed a long grey street in West Kensington, in that chill hour of afternoon, before the lamps are lit. And I was there, a wretched little figure, weeping aloud, for all that I could do to restrain myself and I was weeping because I could not return to my dear playfellows who had called after me, Come back to us, come back to us soon. I was there. This was no page in a book, but harsh reality. That enchanted place and the restraining hand of the grave mother, at whose knee I stood, had gone. Whither had they gone? He halted again and remained for a time staring into the fire. "'Oh, the woefulness of that return!' he murmured. "'Well,' I said after a minute or so, "'poor little wretch I was, "'brought back to this grey world again. "'As I realised the fullness of what had happened to me, "'I gave way to quite ungovernable grief, "'and the shame and humiliation of that public weeping, "'and my disgraceful homecoming.' remain with me still i see again the benevolent looking old gentleman in gold spectacles who stopped and spoke to me prodding me first with his umbrella Poor little chap said he and are you lost then and me a london boy of five and more and he must needs bring in a kindly young policeman and make a crowd of me and so march me home sobbing conspicuous and frightened i came back from the enchanted garden to the steps of my father's house that is as well as i can remember my vision of that garden the garden that haunts me still of course i can convey nothing of that indescribable quality of translucent unreality that difference from the common things of experience that hung about it all but that that is what happened if it was a dream I am sure it was a daytime and altogether extraordinary dream. Mm. naturally there followed a terrible questioning by my aunt, my father, the nurse, the governess, everyone. I tried to tell them, and my father gave me my first thrashing for telling lies. When afterwards I tried to tell my aunt, she punished me again for my wicked persistence. Then, as I said, everyone was forbidden to listen to me to hear a word about it even my fairy tale books were taken away from me for a time because i was too imaginative eh yes they did that my father belonged to the old school and my story was driven back upon myself i whispered it to my pillow my pillow that was often damp and salt to my whispering lips with childish tears and I added always to my official and less fervent prayers this one heartfelt request. Please, God, I may dream of the garden. Oh, take me back to my garden. Take me back to my garden. I dreamt often of the garden. I may have added to it, I may have changed it, I do not know. All this, you understand, is an attempt to reconstruct from fragmentary memories— a very early experience. Between that and the other consecutive memories of my boyhood, there is a gulf. A time came when it seemed impossible I should ever speak of that wonder glimpse again. I asked an obvious question. No, he said, I don't remember that I ever attempted to find my way back to the garden in those early years." this seems odd to me now but i think that very probably a closer watch was kept on my movements after this misadventure to prevent my going astray no it wasn't till you knew me that i tried for the garden again and i believe there was a period incredible as it seems now when i forgot the garden altogether when i was about eight or nine it may have been do you remember me as a kid at st ethelstan's Rather, I didn't show any signs, did I, in those days of having a secret dream? Part two, He looked up with a sudden smile. Did you ever play Northwest Passage with me? No, of course. You didn't come my way. It was the sort of game, he went on, that every imaginative child plays all day. The idea was the discovery of a Northwest Passage to school. The way to school was plain enough, the game consisted in finding some way that wasn't plain, starting off ten minutes early in some almost hopeless direction, and working my way round through unaccustomed streets to my goal. And one day I got entangled among some rather low-class streets on the other side of Captain Hill, and I began to think that, for once, the game would be against me, and that I should get to school late. I tried, rather desperately, a street that seemed a cul-de-sac, and found a passage at the end. I hurried through that with renewed hope. "'I shall do it yet,' I said, and passed a row of frowsy little shops that were inexplicably familiar to me, and behold, there was my long white wall, and the green door that led to the enchanted garden. The thing whacked upon me suddenly, then after all that garden, that wonderful garden, wasn't a dream. He paused. I suppose my second experience with the green door marks the world of difference there is between the busy life of a schoolboy and the infinite leisure of a child. Anyhow, this second time, I didn't, for a moment, think of going in straight away. You see, for one thing, my mind was full of the idea of getting to school in time, set on not breaking my record for punctuality. I must surely have felt some little desire at least to try the door. Yes, I must have felt that. But I seem to remember the attraction of the door mainly as another obstacle to my overmastering determination to get to school. I was immensely interested by this discovery I had made, of course. I went on with my mind full of it, but I went on. It didn't check me. I ran past, tugging out my watch, found I had ten minutes still to spare, and then I was going downhill into familiar surroundings. I got to school, breathless it is true, and wet with perspiration, but in time I can remember hanging up my coat and hat went right by it, and left it behind me. Hard, eh? He looked at me thoughtfully. Of course, I didn't know then that it wouldn't always be there. Schoolboys have limited imaginations. I suppose I thought it was an awfully jolly thing to have it there, to know my way back to it. But there was the school tugging at me. I expect I was a good deal distraught and inattentive that morning recalling what I could of the beautiful, strange people I should presently see again. Oddly enough, I had no doubt in my mind that they would be glad to see me. Yes, I must have thought of the garden that morning just as a jolly sort of place to which one might resort in the interludes of a strenuous, scholastic career. I didn't go that day at all. The next day was a half-holiday, and that may have weighed with me perhaps, too, my state of inattention brought down impositions upon me, and docked the margin of time necessary for the detour. I don't know. What I do know is that, in the meantime, the enchanted garden was so much upon my mind that I could not keep it to myself. I told—what was his name?—a ferrety looking youngster we used to call Squiff. Young Hopkins, said I, Hopkins it was. I did not like telling him. I had a feeling that in some way it was against the rules to tell him But I did he was walking part of the way home with me He was talkative and if we had not talked about the enchanted garden we should have talked of something else and It was intolerable to me to think about any other subject. So I blabbed well, he told my secret the next day in the play interval I found myself surrounded by half a dozen bigger boys, half-teasing and wholly curious to hear more of the enchanted garden. There was that big Fawcett, you remember him, and Carnaby, and Morley Reynolds. You weren't there by any chance. No, I think I should have remembered if you were. A boy is a creature of odd feelings. I was, I really believe, in spite of my secret self-disgust, a little flattered, to have the attention of these big fellows. I remember particularly a moment of pleasure caused by the praise of Crawshaw—you remember Crawshaw Major, the son of Crawshaw the composer—who said it was the best lie he had ever heard. But at the same time there was a really painful undertow of shame at telling what I felt was indeed a sacred secret. That beast Fawcett made a joke about the girl in green. Wallace's voice sank with the keen memory of that shame. "'I pretended not to hear,' he said. "'Well, then Carnaby suddenly called me a young liar, "'and disputed with me when I said the thing was true. "'I said I knew where to find the green door, "'could lead them all there in ten minutes. "'Carnaby became outrageously virtuous, "'and said I'd have to, and bear out my words, or suffer.' Did you ever have Carnaby twist your arm? Then perhaps you'll understand how it went with me. I swore my story was true. There was nobody in the school then to save a chap from Carnaby. Though Crawshaw put in a word or so, Carnaby had got his game. I grew excited and red-eared and a little frightened. I behaved altogether like a silly little chap, and the outcome of it all was that Instead of starting alone for my enchanted garden, I led the way presently, cheeks flushed, ears hot, eyes smarting, and my soul one burning misery and shame, for a party of six mocking, curious, and threatening schoolfellows. We never found the white wall and the green door. You mean? I mean, I couldn't find it. I would have found it if I could, and afterwards, when I could go alone, I couldn't find it. I never found it. I seem now to have been always looking for it, through my schoolboy days, but I never came upon it, never. Did the fellows make it disagreeable? Beastly, Carnaby held a council over me for wanton lying. I remember how I sneaked home and upstairs to hide the marks of my blubbering. But when I cried myself to sleep at last, it wasn't for Carnaby, but for the garden, for the beautiful afternoon I had hoped for, for the sweet, friendly women, and the waiting playfellows, and the game I had hoped to learn again, that beautiful, forgotten game. I believed firmly that if I had not told, I had bad times after that, crying at night and wool-gathering by day. For two terms I slackened and had bad reports. Do you remember? Of course you would. It was you, your beating me in mathematics, that brought me back to the grind again. Part three. For a time my friend stared silently into the red heart of the fire. Then he said, I never saw it again until I was seventeen. It leapt upon me for the third time as I was driving to Paddington, on my way to Oxford and a scholarship. I had just one momentary glimpse. I was leaning over the apron of my hansom, smoking a cigarette, and, no doubt thinking myself, no end of a man of the world. And suddenly there was the door, the wall, the dear sense of unforgettable and still attainable things. We clattered by. I too taken by surprise to stop my cab, until we were well past and round a corner. Then I had a queer moment, a double and divergent movement of my will. I tapped the little door in the roof of the cab, and brought my arm down to pull out my watch. "'Yes, sir,' said the cabman smartly. "'Ah, well, it's nothing,' I cried. "'My mistake. We haven't much time. Go on.' And he went on. I got my scholarship.' and the night after I was told of that, I sat over my fire in my little upper room, my study, in my father's house, with his praise, his rare praise, and his sound counsels ringing in my ears, and I smoked my favorite pipe, the formidable bulldog of adolescence, and thought of that door in the long white wall. If I had stopped, I thought, I should have missed my scholarship, I should have missed Oxford, muddled all the fine career before me, I begin to see things better. I fell musing deeply, but I did not doubt then this career of mine was a thing that merited sacrifice. Those dear friends and that clear atmosphere seemed very sweet to me, very fine but remote, My grip was fixing now upon the world. I saw another door opening, the door of my career. He stared again into the fire. Its red light picked out a stubborn strength in his face for just one flickering moment, and then it vanished again. Well, he said, and sighed, I have served that career. I have done much work, much hard work but i have dreamt of the enchanted garden a thousand dreams and seen its door or at least glimpsed its door four times since then yes four times for a while this world was so bright and interesting seemed so full of meaning and opportunity that the half effaced charm of the garden was by comparison gentle and remote who wants to pat panthers On the way to dinner with pretty women and distinguished men, I came down to London from Oxford, a man of bold promise, that I have done something to redeem, something, and yet there have been disappointments. Twice I have been in love, I will not dwell on that, but once, as I went to someone who I knew doubted whether I dared to come, I took a short cut. At a venture through an unfrequented road near Earl's Court, and so happened, on a white wall and a familiar green door. Odd, said I to myself, but I thought this place was on Campton Hill. It's the place I never could find somehow, like Counting Stonehenge, the place of that queer daydream of mine. And I went by it, intent upon my purpose. It had no appeal to me that afternoon, I had just a moment's impulse to try the door. Three steps aside were needed at the most, though I was sure enough in my heart that it would open to me, and then I thought that doing so might delay me on the way to that appointment, in which I thought my honour was involved. Afterwards, I was sorry for my punctuality. Might at least have peeped in, I thought, and waved a hand to those panthers. But I knew enough by this time not to seek again, belatedly, that which is not found by seeking. Yes, that time made me very sorry. Years of hard work after that, and never a sight of the door. It's only recently that it has come back to me. With it there has come a sense as though some thin tarnish had spread itself over my world. I began to think of it as a sorrowful and bitter thing that I should never see that door again. Perhaps I was suffering a little from overwork. Perhaps it was what I've heard spoken of as the feeling of 40. I don't know, but certainly the keen brightness that makes effort easy has gone out of things recently, and that just at a time, with all these new political developments, when I ought to be working. Odd, isn't it? But I do begin to find life toilsome. It's rewards, as I come near them, cheap. I began, a little while ago, to want the garden quite badly. Yes, and I've seen it three times. The garden? No, the door. And I haven't gone in. He leant over the table to me with an enormous sorrow in his voice, as he spoke. Thrice! Thrice! I have had my chance thrice if ever that door offers itself to me again i swore i will go in out of this dust and heat out of this dry glitter of vanity out of these toilsome futilities i will go and never return this time i will stay i swore it and when the time came i didn't go three times in one year have I passed that door and failed to enter three times in the last year. The first time was on the night of the Snatch Division on the Tenants' Redemption Bill, on which the government was saved by a majority of three. You remember, no one on our side, perhaps very few on the opposite side, expected the end that night. Then the debate collapsed like eggshells. I and Hotchkiss were dining with his cousin at Brentford. We were both unpaired, and we were called up by telephone, and set off at once in his cousin's motor. We got in barely in time, and on the way we passed my wall and door, livid in the moonlight, blotched with hot yellow as the glare of our lamps lit it, but unmistakable. "'My God!' cried I. "'What?' said Hotchkiss. "'Nothing,' I answered, and the moment passed. "'I've made a great sacrifice,' I told the whip as I got in. "'They all have,' he said, and hurried by. "'I do not see how I could have done otherwise then, "'and the next occasion was as I rushed to my father's bedside "'to bid that stern old man farewell. "'Then, too, the claims of life were imperative. "'But the third time was different. "'It happened a week ago.' It fills me with hot remorse, to recall it. I was with Gurkha and Ralph's. It's no secret now, you know, that I've had my talk with Gurkha. We had been dining at Frobisher's, and the talk had become intimate between us. The question of my place in the reconstructed ministry lay always just over the boundary of the discussion. Yes, yes, that's all settled. It needn't be talked about yet but there's no reason to keep a secret from you. Yes, thanks, thanks, but let me tell you my story. Then, on that night, things were very much in the air. My position was a very delicate one. I was keenly anxious to get some definite word from Gurke, but was hampered by Ralph's presence. I was using the best power of my brain to keep that light and careless talk not too obviously directed to the point that concerned me. I had to. Ralph's behavior since has more than justified my caution. Ralph's, I knew, would leave us beyond the Kensington High Street, and then I could surprise Gurkha by a sudden frankness. One has sometimes to resort to these little devices. And then it was that in the margin of my field of vision I became aware once more of the white wall, the green door before us down the road we passed it talking i passed it i can still see the shadow of Gurkha's marked profile his opera hat tilted forward over his prominent nose the many folds of his neck wrap going before my shadow and ralph's as we sauntered past i passed within twenty inches of the door If I say good-night to them and go in, I asked myself, what will happen? And I was all a-tingle for that word with Gurkha. I could not answer that question in the tangle of my other problems. They will think me mad, I thought. And suppose I vanish now. Amazing disappearance of a prominent politician. That weighed with me. A thousand inconceivably petty worldlinesses weighed with me in that crisis. Then he turned on me with a sorrowful smile, and, speaking slowly, here I am, he said. Here I am, he repeated, and my chance has gone from me. Three times in one year the door has been offered me, the door that goes into peace, into delight, into a beauty beyond dreaming, a kindness no man on earth can know, and I have rejected it redmond and it has gone how do you know i know i know i am left now to work it out to stick to the tasks that held me so strongly when my moments came you say i have success this vulgar tawdry irksome envied thing i have it he had a walnut in his big hand If that was my success, he said, and crushed it and held it out for me to see. Let me tell you something, Redmond. This loss is destroying me for two months, for ten weeks dearly now. I have done no work at all except the most necessary and urgent duties. My soul is full of inappeasable regrets. At nights, when it is less likely I shall be recognized, I go out. I wander yes i wonder what people would think of that if they knew a cabinet minister the responsible head of that most vital of all departments wandering alone grieving sometimes near audibly lamenting for a door for a garden part four i can see now his rather pallid face And the unfamiliar sombre fire that had come into his eyes i see him very vividly tonight i sit recalling his words his tones and last evening's westminster gazette still lies on my sofa containing the notice of his death at lunch today the club was busy with his death we talked of nothing else they found his body very early yesterday morning in a deep excavation near East Kensington Station. It is one of two shafts that have been made in connection with an extension of the railway southward. It is protected from the intrusion of the public by a hoarding upon the high road, in which a small doorway has been cut for the convenience of some of the workmen who live in that direction. The doorway was left unfastened through a misunderstanding between two gangers, and through it he made his way. My mind is darkened with questions and riddles it would seem he walked all the way from the house that night he has frequently walked home during the past session and so it is i figure his dark form coming along the late and empty streets wrapped up intent and then did the pale electric lights near the station cheat the rough planking into a semblance of white Did that fatal unfastened door awaken some memory? Was there, after all, ever, any green door in the wall at all? I do not know. I have told his story as he told it to me. There are times when I believe that Wallace was no more than the victim of the coincidence between a rare but not unprecedented type of hallucination and a careless trap. But that indeed is not my profoundest belief you may think me superstitious if you will and foolish but indeed i am more than half convinced that he had in truth an abnormal gift and a sense something i know not what that in the guise of wall and door offered him an outlet a secret and peculiar passage of escape into another and altogether more beautiful world at any rate you will say it betrayed him in the end but did it betray him there you touch the inmost mystery of these dreamers these men of vision and the imagination we see our world fair and common the hoarding and the pit by our daylight standard he walked out of security Into darkness, danger, and death. But did he see it like that? End of section 31 Section 32 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Country of the Blind Three hundred miles and more from Chimborazo, one hundred from the snows of Cotapaxi, in the wildest wastes of Ecuador's Andes, there lies that mysterious mountain valley, cut off from the world of men, the country of the blind. Long years ago that valley lay so far open to the world that men might come at last through frightful gorges and over an icy pass into its equable meadows and thither indeed men came a family or so of peruvian half-breeds fleeing from the lust and tyranny of an evil spanish ruler then came the stupendous outbreak of Mindabamba, when it was night in quito for seventeen days and the water was boiling at jaguachi and all the fish floating dying even as far as guayaquil everywhere along the pacific slopes there were landslips and swift thawings and sudden floods and one whole side of the old Arauca crest slipped and came down in thunder and cut off the country of the blind for ever from the exploring feet of men but one of these early settlers had chanced to be on the hither side of the gorges when the world had so terribly shaken itself and he perforce had to forget his wife and his child and all the friends and possessions he had left up there and start life over again in the lower world he started it again but ill blindness overtook him and he died of punishment in the mines but the story he told begot a legend that lingers along the length of the cordilleras of the andes to this day he told of his reason for venturing back from that fastness into which he had first been carried lashed to a llama beside a vast bale of gear when he was a child the valley he said had in it all that the heart of man could desire sweet water pasture and even climate slopes of rich brown soil with tangles of a shrub that bore an excellent fruit and on one side great hanging forests of pine that held the avalanches high far overhead On three sides, vast cliffs of grey-green rock were capped by cliffs of ice. But the glacier stream came not to them, but flowed away by the farther slopes, and only now and then huge ice masses fell on the valley side. In this valley it neither rained nor snowed, but the abundant springs gave a rich green pasture that irrigation would spread all over the valley space. The settlers did well indeed there, their beasts did well and multiplied, and but one thing marred their happiness, yet it was enough to mar it greatly. A strange disease had come upon them, and had made all the children born to them there, and indeed several older children also, blind. It was to seek some charm or antidote against this plague of blindness that he had with fatigue and danger and difficulty, returned down the gorge. In those days, in such cases, men did not think of germs and infections, but of sins, and it seemed to him that the reason of this affliction must lie in the negligence of these priestless immigrants, to set up a shrine so soon as they entered the valley. He wanted a shrine, a handsome, cheap, effectual shrine, to be erected in the valley. He wanted relics, and such like potent things of faith, blessed objects, and mysterious medals and prayers. In his wallet he had a bar of native silver, for which he could not account. He insisted there was none in the valley, with something of the insistence of an inexpert liar. They had all clubbed their money and ornaments together, having little need for such treasure up there, he said, to buy them holy help against their ill. I figure this dim-eyed young mountaineer, sunburnt, gaunt, and anxious hat-brim clutched feverishly, a man all unused to the ways of the lower world, telling this story to some keen-eyed attentive priest before the great convulsion. I can picture him presently seeking to return with pious and infallible remedies against that trouble and the infinite dismay with which he must have faced the tumbled vastness where the gorge had once come out but the rest of his story of mischances is lost to me save that i know of his evil death after several years poor stray from that remoteness the stream that had once made the gorge now bursts from the mouth of a rocky cave and the legend his poor ill-told story set going developed into the legend of a race of blind men somewhere over there, one may still hear today. And amidst the little population of that now isolated and forgotten valley, the disease ran its course. The old became groping and purblind. blind the young saw but dimly, and the children that were born to them saw never at all. But life was very easy in that snow-rimmed basin lost to all the world with neither thorns nor briars with no evil insects nor any beasts save the gentle breed of llamas they had lugged and thrust and followed up the beds of the shrunken rivers in the gorges up which they had come the seeing had become purblind so gradually that they had scarcely noted their loss they guided the sightless youngsters hither and thither until they knew the whole valley marvellously and when at last sight died out among them, the race lived on. They had even time to adapt themselves to the blind control of fire, which they made carefully in stoves of stone. They were a simple strain of people at the first, unlettered, only slightly touched with the Spanish civilization, but with something of a tradition of the arts of old Peru and of its lost philosophy. Generation followed generation they forgot many things, they devised many things. Their tradition of the greater world they came from became mythical in colour and uncertain. In all things save sight, they were strong and able, and presently the chance of birth and heredity sent one who had an original mind, and who could talk and persuade among them, and then afterwards another. These two passed, leaving their effects, and the little community grew in numbers and in understanding and met and settled social and economic problems that arose generation followed generation generation followed generation there came a time when a child was born who was fifteen generations from that ancestor who went out of the valley with a bar of silver to seek god's aid and who never returned Thereabouts, it chanced that a man came into this community from the outer world, and this is the story of that man. He was a mountaineer from the country near Quito, a man who had been down to the sea and had seen the world, a reader of books in an original way, an acute and enterprising man, and he was taken on by a party of Englishmen who had come out to Ecuador to climb mountains, to replace one of three swiss guides who had fallen ill he climbed here and he climbed there and then came the attempt on paris the matterhorn of the andes in which he was lost to the outer world the story of the accident has been written a dozen times pointer's narrative is the best he tells how the little party worked their difficult and almost vertical way UP TO THE VERY FOOT OF THE LAST AND GREATEST PRECIPICE, AND HOW THEY BUILT A NIGHT SHELTER AMIDST THE SNOW, UPON A LITTLE SHELF OF ROCK, AND, WITH A TOUCH OF REAL DRAMATIC POWER, HOW PRESENTLY THEY FOUND NUNEZ HAD GONE FROM THEM. THEY SHOUTED, AND THERE WAS NO REPLY, SHOUTED AND WHISTLED, AND FOR THE REST OF THAT NIGHT THEY SLEPT NO MORE. AS THE MORNING BROKE, THEY SAW THE TRACES OF HIS FALL. It seems impossible he could have uttered a sound. He had slipped eastward, towards the unknown side of the mountain. Far below, he had struck a steep slope of snow, and ploughed his way down it in the midst of a snow avalanche. His track went straight to the edge of a frightful precipice, and beyond that everything was hidden. Far, far below, and hazy with distance, they could see trees rising out of a narrow, shut-in valley the lost country of the blind but they did not know it was the lost country of the blind nor distinguish it in any way from any other narrow streak of upland valley unnerved by this disaster they abandoned their attempt in the afternoon and pointer was called away to the war before he could make another attack to this day Parascotopetal lifts an unconquered crest and pointer's shelter crumbles unvisited amidst the snows and the man who fell survived at the end of the slope he fell a thousand feet and came down in the midst of a cloud of snow upon a snow slope even steeper than the one above down this he was whirled stunned and insensible but without a bone broken in his body and then at last came to gentler slopes and at last rolled out and lay still, buried amidst a softening heap of the white masses that had accompanied and saved him. He came to himself with a dim fancy that he was ill in bed, then realized his position with a mountaineer's intelligence, and worked himself loose, and, after a rest or so, out until he saw the stars. He rested flat upon his chest for a space, wondering where he was and what had happened to him. He explored his limbs and discovered that several of his buttons were gone, and his coat turned over his head, his knife had gone from his pocket, and his hat was lost, though he had tied it under his chin. He recalled that he had been looking for loose stones to raise his piece of the shelter wall. His ice-axe had disappeared. He decided he must have fallen, and looked up to see exaggerated by the ghastly light of the rising moon the tremendous flight he had taken for a while he lay gazing blankly at that vast pale cliff towering above rising moment by moment out of a subsiding tide of darkness its phantasmal mysterious beauty held him for a space and then he was seized with a paroxysm of sobbing laughter after a great interval of time he became aware that he was near the lower edge of the snow below down what was now a moonlit and practicable slope he saw the dark and broken appearance of rock-strewn turf he struggled to his feet aching in every joint and limb got down painfully from the heaped loose snow about him went downward until he was on the turf and there dropped rather than lay beside a boulder drank deep from the flask in his inner pocket and instantly fell asleep he was awakened by the singing of birds in the trees far below he sat up and perceived he was on a little alp at the foot of a vast precipice that was grooved by the gully down which he and his snow had come over against him another wall of rock reared itself against the sky The gorge between these precipices ran east and west, and was full of the morning sunlight, which lit to the westward the mass of fallen mountain that closed the descending gorge. Below him it seemed there was a precipice equally steep, but behind the snow in the gully he found a sort of chimney cleft dripping with snow water, down which a desperate man might venture. He found it easier than it seemed and came at last to another desolate Alp, and then, after a rock-climb of no particular difficulty, to a steep slope of trees. He took his bearings and turned his face up the gorge, for he saw it opened out above upon green meadows, among which he now glimpsed quite distinctly a cluster of stone huts of unfamiliar fashion. At times his progress was like clambering along the face of a wall and after a time the rising sun ceased to strike along the gorge the voices of the singing birds died away and the air grew cold and dark about him but the distant valley with its houses was all the brighter for that he came presently to talus and among the rocks he noted for he was an observant man an unfamiliar fern that seemed to clutch out of the crevices with intense green hands He picked a frond or so, and gnawed its stalk, and found it helpful. About midday he came at last out of the throat of the gorge into the plain and the sunlight. He was stiff and weary. He sat down in the shadow of a rock, filled up his flask with water from a spring, and drank it down, and remained for a time resting before he went on to the houses. They were very strange to his eyes and, indeed, the whole aspect of that valley became, as he regarded it, queerer and more unfamiliar. The greater part of its surface was lush green meadow, starred with many beautiful flowers, irrigated with extraordinary care, and bearing evidence of systematic cropping piece by piece. High up, and ringing the valley about, was a wall, and what appeared to be a circumferential water-channel from which the little trickles of water that fed the meadow plants came, and on the higher slopes above this flocks of llamas cropped the scanty herbage. Sheds, apparently shelters or feeding places for the llamas, stood against the boundary wall here and there. The irrigation streams ran together into a main channel down the centre of the valley, and this was enclosed on either side by a wall breast high. This gave a singularly urban quality to this secluded place, a quality that was greatly enhanced by the fact that a number of paths paved with black and white stones, and each with a curious little curb at the side, ran hither and thither in an orderly manner. The houses of the central village were quite unlike the casual and higgledy-piggledy agglomeration of the mountain villages he knew. They stood in a continuous row on either side of a central street of astonishing cleanness. Here and there their party-coloured façade was pierced by a door, and not a solitary window broke their even frontage. They were party-coloured with extraordinary irregularity, smeared with a sort of plaster that was sometimes grey, sometimes drab, sometimes slate-coloured or dark brown and it was the sight of this wild plastering first brought the word blind into the thoughts of the explorer the good man who did that he thought must have been as blind as a bat he descended a steep place and so came to the wall and channel that ran about the valley near where the latter spouted out its surplus contents into the deeps of the gorge in a thin and wavering thread of cascade He could now see a number of men and women resting on piled heaps of grass, as if taking a siesta, in the remoter part of the meadow, and nearer the village a number of recumbent children, and then nearer at hand three men carrying pails on yokes, along a little path that ran from the encircling wall towards the houses. These latter were clad in garments of llama cloth and boots and belts of leather, and they wore caps of cloth with back and ear flaps. They followed one another in single file, walking slowly and yawning as they walked, like men who have been up all night. There was something so reassuringly prosperous and respectable in their bearing that, after a moment's hesitation, Nunez stood forward as conspicuously as possible upon his rock and gave vent to a mighty shout that echoed round the valley. The three men stopped and moved their heads as though they were looking about them. They turned their faces this way and that and Nunez gesticulated with freedom, but they did not appear to see him for all his gestures and after a time directing themselves towards the mountains far away to the right, they shouted as if in answer. Nunez bawled again and then once more, and as he gestured ineffectually, The word blind came up to the top of his thoughts. "'The fools must be blind,' he said. When at last, after much shouting and wrath, Nunez crossed the stream by a little bridge, came through a gate in the wall, and approached them, he was sure that they were blind. He was sure that this was the country of the blind, of which the legends told. Conviction had sprung upon him, and a sense of great and rather enviable adventure. The three stood side by side, not looking at him, but with their ears directed towards him, judging him by his unfamiliar steps. They stood close together, like men, a little afraid, and he could see their eyelids closed and sunken, as though the very balls beneath had shrunk away. There was an expression near awe on their faces a man one said in hardly recognizable spanish a man it is a man or a spirit coming down from the rocks but Nunez advanced with the confident steps of a youth who enters upon life all the old stories of the lost valley and the country of the blind had come back to his mind and through his thoughts ran this old proverb as if it were a refrain in the country of the blind the one-eyed man is king in the country of the blind the one-eyed man is king and very civilly he gave them greeting he talked to them and used his eyes where is he come from brother pedro asked one down out of the rocks over the mountains i come said nunez out of the country beyond there where men can see from near Bogota where there are a hundred thousands of people, and where the city passes out of sight. Sight? muttered Pedro. Sight? He comes, said the second blind man, out of the rocks. The cloth of their coats, Nunez saw, was curiously fashioned, each with a different sort of stitching. They startled him by a simultaneous movement towards him, each with a hand outstretched. He stepped back from the advance of these spread fingers. "'Come hither,' said the third blind man, following his motion and clutching him neatly, and they held Nunez and felt him over, saying no word further until they had done so. "'Carefully,' he cried, with a finger in his eye, and found they thought that organ, with its fluttering lids, a queer thing in him. They went over it again. "'A strange creature, Correa,' said the one called Pedro." Feel the coarseness of his hair like a llama's hair, rough he is as the rocks that begot him, said Correa, investigating Nunez's unshaven chin with a soft and slightly moist hand. Perhaps he will grow finer. Nunez struggled a little under their examination, but they gripped him firm carefully. He said again, he speaks, said the third man, certainly he is a man. Ugh, said Pedro, at the roughness of his coat. And you have come into the world? asked Pedro. Out of the world, over mountains and glaciers, right over above there, halfway to the sun, out of the great big world that goes down twelve days journey to the sea. They scarcely seemed to heed him. Our fathers have told us men may be made by the forces of nature, said Correa. It is the warmth of things, and moisture, and rottenness, rottenness. Let us lead him to the elders, said Pedro. Shout first, said Correa, lest the children be afraid. This is a marvellous occasion. So they shouted, and Pedro went first, and took Nunez by the hand to lead him to the houses. He drew his hand away. I can see, he said. See? see? said Correa. Yes, see, said Nunez, turning towards him, and stumbled against Pedro's pail. "'His senses are still imperfect,' said the third blind man. "'He stumbles and talks unmeaning words. Lead him by the hand.' "'As you will,' said Nunez, and was led along laughing. It seemed they knew nothing of sight. Well, all in good time he would teach them. He heard people shouting, and saw a number of figures gathering together in the middle roadway of the village." he found it tax his nerve and patience more than he had anticipated that first encounter with the population of the country of the blind the place seemed larger as he drew near to it and the smeared plasterings queerer and a crowd of children and men and women the women and girls he was pleased to note had some of them quite sweet faces for all that their eyes were shut and sunken came about him holding on to him touching him with soft sensitive hands smelling at him and listening at every word he spoke some of the maidens and children however kept aloof as if afraid and indeed his voice seemed coarse and rude beside their softer notes they mobbed him his three guides kept close to him with an effect of proprietorship and said again and again a wild man out of the rocks bogata he said "'Bogata, over the mountain crests.' "'A wild man, using wild words,' said Pedro. "'Did you hear that? "'Bogata? "'His mind is hardly formed yet. "'He has only the beginnings of speech.' "'A little boy nipped his hand. Bogota, he said mockingly. i a a city to your village. "'I come from the great world where men have eyes and see.' "'His name's Bogata,' they said. "'He stumbled,' said Correa. "'Stumbled twice as we came hither. "'Bring him to the elders.' "'And they thrust him suddenly through a doorway "'into a room as black as pitch, "'save at the end there faintly glowed a fire. "'The crowd closed in behind him "'and shut out all but the faintest glimmer of day, "'and before he could arrest himself "'he had fallen headlong over the feet of a seated man. "'His arm outflung struck the face of someone else as he went down, he felt the soft impact of features, had heard a cry of anger, and for a moment he struggled against a number of hands that clutched him. It was a one-sided fight. An inkling of the situation came to him, and he lay quiet. "'I fell down,' he said. "'I couldn't see in this pitchy darkness.' There was a pause as if the unseen persons about him tried to understand his words. Then the voice of Korea said, He is but newly formed. He stumbles as he walks, and mingles words that mean nothing with his speech. Others also said things about him that he heard or understood imperfectly. May I sit up? he asked in a pause. I will not struggle against you again. They consulted and let him rise. The voice of an older man began to question him and Nunez found himself trying to explain the great world out of which he had fallen, and the sky, and mountains, and sight, and such like marvels, to these elders who sat in darkness in the country of the blind. And they would believe and understand nothing whatever he told them, a thing quite outside his expectation. They would not even understand many of his words." For fourteen generations these people had been blind and cut off from all the seeing world. The names for all the things of sight had faded and changed. The story of the outer world was faded and changed to a child's story, and they had ceased to concern themselves with anything beyond the rocky slopes above their circling wall. Blind men of genius had arisen among them AND QUESTIONED THE SHREDS OF BELIEF AND TRADITION THEY HAD BROUGHT WITH THEM FROM THEIR SEEING DAYS, AND HAD DISMISSED ALL THESE THINGS AS IDLE FANCIES, AND REPLACED THEM WITH NEW AND SANER EXPLANATIONS. MUCH OF THEIR IMAGINATION HAD SHRIVELED WITH THEIR EYES, AND THEY HAD MADE FOR THEMSELVES NEW IMAGINATIONS WITH THEIR EVER MORE SENSITIVE EARS AND FINGERTIPS. Slowly, Nunez realized this that his expectation of wonder and reverence at his origin and his gifts was not to be borne out. And after his poor attempt to explain sight to them had been set aside as the confused version of a new made being describing the marvels of his incoherent sensations, he subsided a little dashed into listening to their instruction and the eldest of the blind men explained to him life and philosophy and religion how that the world meaning their valley had been first an empty hollow in the rocks and then had come first inanimate things without the gift of touch and llamas and a few other creatures that had little sense and then men and at last angels whom one could hear singing and making fluttering sounds but whom no one could touch at all which puzzled nunez greatly until he thought of the birds he went on to tell nunez how this time had been divided into the warm and the cold which are the blind equivalents of day and night and how it was good to sleep in the warm and work during the cold so that now, but for his advent, the whole town of the blind would have been asleep. He said "Nunez must have been specially created to learn and serve the wisdom they had acquired, and that for all his mental incoherency and stumbling behavior he must have courage, and do his best to learn, and at that all the people in the doorway murmured encouragingly. He said the night, for the blind call their day night, was now far gone, and it behoved everyone to go back to sleep. He asked Nunez if he knew how to sleep, and Nunez said he did, but that before sleep he wanted food. They brought him food, llama's milk, in a bowl, and rough salted bread, and led him into a lonely place to eat out of their hearing, and afterwards to slumber until the chill of the mountain evening roused them to begin their day again but nunez slumbered not at all instead he sat up in the place where they had left him resting his limbs and turning the unanticipated circumstances of his arrival over and over in his mind every now and then he laughed sometimes with amusement and sometimes with indignation unformed mind he said got no senses yet they little know they've been insulting their heaven sent king and master i see i must bring them to reason let me think let me think he was still thinking when the sun set nunez had an eye for all beautiful things and it seemed to him that the glow upon the snowfields and glaciers that rose about the valley on every side was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen his eyes went from that inaccessible glory to the village and irrigated fields fast sinking into the twilight and suddenly a wave of emotion took him and he thanked God, from the bottom of his heart, that the power of sight had been given him. He heard a voice calling to him from out of the village. Yahoo! there, Bogota! Come hither!' At that he stood up, smiling. He would show these people, once and for all, what sight would do for a man. They would seek him, but not find him. "'You move not, Bogota,' said the voice. He laughed noiselessly and made two stealthy steps aside from the path. "'Tremble not on the grass, Bogota. That is not allowed.' Nunez had scarcely heard the sound he made himself. He stopped, amazed. The owner of the voice came running up the piebald path towards him. He stepped back into the pathway. "'Here I am,' he said. "'Why did you not come when I called you?' said the blind man. "'Must you be led like a child? Cannot you hear the path as you walk?' Nunez laughed. "'I can see it,' he said. "'There is no such word as see,' said the blind man, after a pause. "'Cease this folly, and follow the sound of my feet.' Nunez followed, a little annoyed. "'My time will come,' he said. "'You'll learn,' the blind man answered. "'There is much to learn in the world.' "'Has no one told you, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king?' what is blind asked the blind man carelessly over his shoulder four days passed and the fifth found the king of the blind still incognito as a clumsy and useless stranger among his subjects it was he found much more difficult to proclaim himself than he had supposed and in the meantime while he meditated his coup d'etat he did what he was told and learnt the manners and customs of the country of the blind. He found working and going about at night a particularly irksome thing, and he decided that that should be the first thing he would change. They led a simple, laborious life, these people, with all the elements of virtue and happiness, as these things can be understood by men. They toiled, but not oppressively they had food and clothing sufficient for their needs they had days and seasons of rest they made much of music and singing and there was love among them and little children it was marvellous with what confidence and precision they went about their ordered world everything you see had been made to fit their needs Each of the radiating paths of the valley area had a constant angle to the others, and was distinguished by a special notch upon its curbing. All obstacles and irregularities of path or meadow had long since been cleared away. All their methods and procedure arose naturally from their special needs. Their senses had become marvellously acute. They could hear and judge the slightest gesture of a man a dozen paces away could hear the very beating of his heart intonation had long replaced expression with them and touches gesture and their work with hoe and spade and fork was as free and confident as garden work can be their sense of smell was extraordinarily fine they could distinguish individual differences as readily as a dog can and they went about the tending of the llamas who lived among the rocks above and came to the wall for food and shelter with ease and confidence it was only when at last nunez sought to assert himself that he found how easy and confident their movements could be he rebelled only after he had tried persuasion he tried at first on several occasions to tell them of sight look you here you people he said there are things you do not understand in me Once or twice, one or two of them attended to him. They sat with faces downcast, and ears turned intelligently towards him, and he did his best to tell them what it was to see. Among his hearers was a girl with eyelids less red and sunken than the others, so that one could almost fancy she was hiding eyes, whom especially he hoped to persuade. He spoke of the beauties of sight, of watching the mountains, of the sky and the sunrise, and they heard him with amused incredulity, that presently became condemnatory. They told him there were indeed no mountains at all, but that the end of the rocks where the Lamas grazed was, indeed, the end of the world. Thence sprang a cavernous roof of the universe, from which the dew and the avalanches fell and when he maintained stoutly the world had neither end nor roof, such as they supposed, they said his thoughts were wicked. So far as he could describe sky and clouds and stars to them, it seemed to them a hideous void, a terrible blankness, in the place of the smooth roof to things in which they believed. It was an article of faith with them, that the cavern roof was exquisitely smooth to the touch. He saw that in some manner he shocked them, and gave up that aspect of the matter altogether, and tried to show them the practical value of sight. One morning he saw Pedro in the path called Seventeen, and coming towards the central houses, but still too far off for hearing or scent, and he told them as much. In a little while, he prophesied, Pedro will be here. An old man remarked that Pedro had no business on path 17, and then, as if in confirmation, that individual, as he drew near, turned and went transversely into path 10, and so back with nimble paces towards the outer wall. They mocked Nunez when Pedro did not arrive, and afterwards when he asked Pedro questions to clear his character, Pedro denied and outfaced him, and was afterwards hostile to him. Then he induced them to let him go a long way up the sloping meadows towards the wall with one complacent individual, and to him he promised to describe all that happened among the houses. He noted certain goings and comings, but the things that really seemed to signify to these people happened inside of or behind the windowless houses, the only things they took note of to test him by and of these he could see or tell nothing, and it was after the failure of this attempt and the ridicule they could not repress that he resorted to force. He thought of seizing a spade and suddenly smiting one or two of them to earth, and so in fair combat showing the advantage of eyes he went so far with that resolution as to seize his spade, and then he discovered a new thing about himself, and that was that it was impossible for him to hit a blind man in cold blood he hesitated and found them all aware that he had snatched up the spade they stood alert with their heads on one side and bent ears towards him for what he would do next put that spade down said one and he felt a sort of helpless horror he came near obedience then he thrust one backwards against a house wall and fled past him and out of the village He went athwart one of their meadows, leaving a track of trampled grass behind his feet, and presently sat down by the side of one of their ways. He felt something of the buoyancy that comes to all men in the beginning of a fight, but more perplexity. He began to realize that you cannot even fight happily with creatures who stand upon a different mental basis to yourself. Far away he saw a number of men carrying spades and sticks come out of the street of houses, and advance in a spreading line along the several paths towards him. They advanced slowly, speaking frequently to one another, and ever and again the whole cordon would halt and sniff the air and listen. The first time they did this Nunez laughed, but afterwards he did not laugh. One struck his trail in the meadow grass, and came stooping and feeling his way along it. For five minutes he watched the slow extension of the cordon and then his vague disposition to do something forthwith became frantic he stood up went a pace or so towards the circumferential wall turned and went back a little way there they all stood in a crescent still and listening he also stood still gripping his spade very tightly in both hands should he charge them The pulse in his ears ran into the rhythm of, In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Should he charge them? He looked back at the high and unclimbable wall behind, Unclimbable because of its smooth plastering, But withal pierced with many little doors, And at the approaching line of seekers. Behind these, others were now coming out of the street of houses. Should he charge them? "'Bogata?' called one. "'Bogata, where are you?' He gripped his spade still tighter, and advanced down the meadows towards the place of habitations, and directly he moved they converged upon him. "'I'll hit them if they touch me,' he swore. "'By heaven I will! I'll hit!' he called aloud. "'Look here, I'm going to do what I like in this valley. Do you hear? I'm going to do what I like, and go where I like.' They were moving in upon him quickly groping yet moving rapidly it was like playing blind man's buff with everyone blindfolded except one get hold of him cried one he found himself in the arc of a loose curve of pursuers he felt suddenly he must be active and resolute you don't understand he cried in a voice that was meant to be great and resolute and which broke you are blind and i can see leave me alone put down that spade and come off the grass the last order grotesque in its urban familiarity produced a gust of anger i'll hurt you he said sobbing with emotion by heaven i'll hurt you leave me alone he began to run not knowing clearly where to run he ran from the nearest blind man because it was a horror to hit him he stopped and then made a dash to escape from their closing ranks He made for where a gap was wide, and the men on either side, with a quick perception of the approach of his paces, rushed in on one another. He sprang forward, and then saw he must be caught, and, swish, the spade had struck. He felt the soft thud of hand and arm, and the man was down with a yell of pain, and he was through, through, and then he was close to the street of houses again, and blind men whirling spades and stakes were running with a sort of reasoned swiftness hither and thither. He heard steps behind him, just in time, and found a tall man rushing forward and swiping at the sound of him. He lost his nerve, hurled his spade a yard wide at his antagonist, and whirled about and fled, fairly yelling as he dodged another. He was panic-stricken. He ran furiously to and fro, dodging when there was no need to dodge and in his anxiety to see on every side of him at once stumbling for a moment he was down and they heard his fall far away in the circumferential wall a little doorway looked like heaven and he set off in a wild rush for it he did not even look round at his pursuers until it was gained and he had stumbled across the bridge clambered a little way among the rocks to the surprise and dismay of a young lama who went leaping out of sight and lay down sobbing for breath, and so his coup d'etat came to an end. He stayed outside the wall of the Valley of the Blind for two nights and days without food or shelter, and meditated upon the unexpected. During these meditations he repeated very frequently, and always with a profounder note of derision, the exploded proverb, In the country of the blind the one-eyed man is king. He thought chiefly of ways of fighting and conquering these people and it grew clear that for him no practicable way was possible he had no weapons and now it would be hard to get one the canker of civilization had got to him even in Bogota and he could not find it in himself to go down and assassinate a blind man of course if he did that he might then dictate terms on the threat of assassinating them all, but sooner or later he must sleep. He tried also to find food among the pine trees, to be comfortable among pine bowers while the frost fell at night, and, with less confidence, to catch a llama by artifice in order to try to kill it, perhaps by hammering it with a stone, and so finally, perhaps, to eat some of it, But the lamas had a doubt of him, and regarded him with distrustful brown eyes, and spat when he drew near. Fear came on him the second day, and fits of shivering. Finally, he crawled down to the wall of the country of the blind, and tried to make terms. He crawled along by the stream, shouting, until two blind men came out to the gate, and talked to him. "'I was mad,' he said." "'But I was only newly made.' They said that was better. He told them he was wiser now, and repented of all he had done. Then he wept without intention, for he was very weak and ill now, and they took that as a favourable sign. They asked him if he still thought he could see. "'No,' he said. "'That was folly. The word means nothing, less than nothing.' They asked him what was overhead.' about ten times ten the height of a man there is a roof above the world of rock and very very smooth he burst again into hysterical tears before you ask me any more give me some food or i shall die he expected dire punishments but these blind people were capable of toleration they regarded his rebellion as but one more proof of his general idiocy and inferiority and after they had whipped him They appointed him to do the simplest and heaviest work they had for anyone to do and he seeing no other way of living did submissively what he was told he was ill for some days and they nursed him kindly that refined his submission but they insisted on his lying in the dark and that was a great misery and blind philosophers came and talked to him of the wicked levity of his mind, and reproved him so impressively for his doubts about the lid of rock that covered their cosmic casserole, that he almost doubted whether indeed he was not the victim of hallucination in not seeing it overhead. So Nunez became a citizen of the country of the blind, and these people ceased to be a generalized people, and became individualities, and familiar to him while the world beyond the mountains became more and more remote and unreal there was jacob his master a kindly man when not annoyed there was pedro jacob's nephew and there was medina Cerrote, who was the youngest daughter of jacob she was little esteemed in the world of the blind because she had a clear-cut face and lacked that satisfying glossy smoothness that is the blind man's ideal of feminine beauty, but Nunez thought her beautiful at first, and presently the most beautiful thing in the whole creation. Her closed eyelids were not sunken and red after the common way of the valley, but lay as though they might open again at any moment, and she had long eyelashes, which were considered a grave disfigurement and her voice was strong, and did not satisfy the acute hearing of the valley swains, so that she had no lover. There came a time when Nunes thought that, could he win her, he would be resigned to live in the valley for all the rest of his days. He watched her, he sought opportunities of doing her little services, and presently he found that she observed him. Once, at a rest-day gathering, they sat side by side in the dim starlight, and the music was sweet. His hand came upon hers, and he dared to clasp it. Then, very tenderly, she returned his pressure, and one day, as they were at their meal in the darkness, he felt her hand very softly seeking him, and, as it chanced, the fire leapt then, and he saw the tenderness of her face. He sought to speak to her. He went to her one day when she was sitting in the summer moonlight, spinning. Delight made her a thing of silver and mystery. He sat down at her feet, and told her he loved her, and told her how beautiful she seemed to him. He had a lover's voice. He spoke with a tender reverence that came near to awe, and she had never before been touched by adoration. She made him no definite answer, but it was clear his words pleased her. After that he talked to her whenever he could take an opportunity the valley became the world for him and the world beyond the mountains where men lived in sunlight seemed no more than a fairy tale he would some day pour into her ears very tentatively and timidly he spoke to her of sight sight seemed to her the most poetical of fancies and she listened to his description of the stars and the mountains and her own sweet, white-lit beauty, as though it was a guilty indulgence. She did not believe, she could only half understand, but she was mysteriously delighted, and it seemed to him that she completely understood. His love lost its awe and took courage. Presently he was for demanding her of Jacob and the elders in marriage, but she became fearful and delayed, and it was one of her elder sisters, who first told Jacob that Medina Cerrote and Nunez were in love. There was, from the first, very great opposition to the marriage of Nunez and Medina Cerrote, not so much because they valued her as because they held him as a being apart, an idiot, incompetent thing, below the permissible level of a man. Her sisters opposed it bitterly as bringing discredit on them all, and old jacob though he had formed a sort of liking for his clumsy obedient serf shook his head and said the thing could not be the young men were all angry at the idea of corrupting the race and one went so far as to revile and strike Nunez. he struck back then for the first time he found an advantage in seeing even by twilight and after that fight was over no one was disposed to raise a hand against him but they still found his marriage impossible old jacob had a tenderness for his last little daughter and was grieved to have her weep upon his shoulder you see my dear he's an idiot he has delusions he can't do anything right i know wept medina serote but he's better than he was he's getting better and he's strong dear father and kind stronger and kinder than any other man in the world and he loves me and father i love him old jacob was greatly distressed to find her inconsolable and besides what made it more distressing he liked nunez for many things so he went and sat in the windowless council chamber with the other elders and watched the trend of the talk and said at the proper time he's better than he was very likely some day we shall find him as sane as ourselves. Then afterwards, one of the elders who thought deeply had an idea. He was the great doctor among these people, their medicine man, and he had a very philosophical and inventive mind. And the idea of curing Nunez of his peculiarities appealed to him. One day, when Jacob was present, he returned to the topic of Nunez. I have examined Bogota, he said and the case is clearer to me i think very probably he might be cured that is what i have always hoped said old jacob his brain is affected said the blind doctor the elders murmured assent now what affects it ah said old jacob this said the doctor answering his own question those queer things that are called the eyes and which exist to make an agreeable soft depression in the face are diseased in the case of bogota in such a way as to affect his brain they are greatly distended he has eyelashes and his eyelids move and consequently his brain is in a state of constant irritation and distraction yes said old jacob yes and i think i may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him completely all that we need do is a simple and easy surgical operation namely, to remove these irritant bodies. And then he will be sane? Then he will be perfectly sane, and a quite admirable citizen. "'Thank heaven for science,' said old Jacob, and went forth at once to tell Nunez of his happy hopes. But Nunez's manner of receiving the good news struck him as being cold and disappointing. "'One might think,' he said, "'from the tone you take, that you do not care for my daughter.' it was medina cerote who persuaded nunez to face the blind surgeons you do not want me he said to lose my gift of sight she shook her head my world is sight her head dropped lower there are the beautiful things the beautiful little things the flowers the lichens among the rocks the lightness and softness on a piece of fur, the far sky with its drifting down of clouds the sunsets and the stars, and there is you, for you alone it is good to have sight, to see your sweet, serene face, your kindly lips, your dear, beautiful hands folded together. It is these eyes of mine, you one, these eyes that hold me to you, that these idiots seek. Instead, I must touch you, hear you, and never see you again." I must come under that roof of rock and stone and darkness that horrible roof under which your imagination stoops no you would not have me do that a disagreeable doubt had arisen in him he stopped and left the thing a question i wish she said sometimes she paused yes Yes, said he a little apprehensively i wish sometimes You would not talk like that. Like what? I know it's pretty, it's your imagination, I love it, but now—' He felt cold. Now? He said faintly. She sat quite still. You mean, you think I should be better—better, perhaps? He was realizing things very swiftly. He felt anger, indeed—anger at the dull course of fate, but also sympathy for her lack of understanding, a sympathy near akin to pity. "'Dear,' he said, and he could see by her whiteness how intensely her spirit pressed against the things she could not say. He put his arm about her, he kissed her ear, and they sat for a time in silence. "'If I were to consent to this,' he said at last, in a voice that was very gentle. She flung her arms about him, weeping wildly." oh if you would she sobbed if only you would for a week before the operation that was to raise him from his servitude and inferiority to the level of a blind citizen nunez knew nothing of sleep and all through the warm sunlit hours while the others slumbered happily he sat brooding or wandering aimlessly trying to bring his mind to bear on his dilemma he had given his answer he had given his consent, and still he was not sure. And, at last, work time was over. The sun rose in splendor over the golden crests, and his last day of vision began for him. He had a few minutes with Medina serote before she went apart to sleep. "'Tomorrow,' he said, "'I shall see no more.' "'Dear heart,' she answered, and pressed his hands with all her strength, "'They will hurt you but little,' she said. "'And you are going through this pain, "'you are going through it, dear lover, for me. "'Dear, if a woman's heart and life can do it, "'I will repay you. "'My dearest one, my dearest with the tender voice, "'I will repay.' "'He was drenched in pity for himself and her. "'He held her in his arms and pressed his lips to hers "'and looked on her sweet face for the last time.' good-bye he whispered at that dear sight good-bye and then in silence he turned away from her she could hear his slow retreating footsteps and something in the rhythm of them threw her into a passion of weeping he had fully meant to go to a lonely place where the meadows were beautiful with white narcissus and there remain until the hour of his sacrifice should come but as he went He lifted up his eyes, and saw the morning, the morning like an angel in golden armour marching down the steeps. It seemed to him that before this splendour, he and this blind world in the valley, and his love and all, were no more than a pit of sin. He did not turn aside as he had meant to, but went on, and passed through the wall of the circumference, and out upon the rocks. And his eyes were always upon the sunlit ice and snow he saw their infinite beauty and his imagination soared over them to the things beyond he was now to resign for ever he thought of that great free world he was parted from the world that was his own and he had a vision of those further slopes distance beyond distance with bogotá a place of multitudinous stirring beauty a glory by day a luminous mystery by night a place of palaces and fountains and statues and white houses lying beautifully in the middle distance he thought how for a day or so one might come down through passes drawing ever nearer and nearer to its busy streets and ways he thought of the river journey day by day from great Bogota to the still vaster world beyond, through towns and villages, forest and desert places, the rushing river, day by day, until its banks receded and the big steamers came splashing by, and one had reached the sea, the limitless sea, with its thousand islands, its thousands of islands, and its ships seen dimly far away in their incessant journeyings round and about that greater world and there unpent by mountains one saw the sky the sky not such a disk as one saw it here but an arch of immeasurable blue a deep of deeps in which the circling stars were floating his eyes scrutinized the great curtain of the mountains with a keener inquiry for example if one went so up that gully and to that chimney there then one might come out high among those stunted pines that ran round in a sort of shelf and rose still higher and higher as it passed above the gorge and then that talus might be managed thence perhaps a climb might be found to take him up to the precipice that came below the snow, and if that chimney failed, then another, farther to the east, might serve his purpose better, and then, then one would be out, upon the amber-lit snow there, and half-way up to the crest of those beautiful desolations. He glanced back at the village, then turned right round and regarded it steadfastly. He thought, of medina sarote and she had become small and remote he turned again towards the mountain wall down which the day had come to him then very circumspectly he began to climb when sunset came he was no longer climbing but he was far and high he had been higher but he was still very high his clothes were torn his limbs were blood-stained He was bruised in many places, but he lay as if he were at his ease, and there was a smile on his face. From where he rested the valley seemed as if it were in a pit, and nearly a mile below. Already it was dim with haze and shadow, though the mountain summits around him were things of light and fire. The mountain summits around him were things of light and fire and the little details of the rocks near at hand were drenched with subtle beauty, a vein of green mineral piercing the grey, the flash of crystal faces here and there, a minute, minutely beautiful orange lichen close beside his face. There were deep, mysterious shadows in the gorge, blue deepening into purple, and purple into a luminous darkness, and overhead was the illimitable vastness of the sky. But he heeded these things no longer, and lay quite inactive there, smiling as if he were satisfied, merely to have escaped from the valley of the blind, in which he had thought to be king. The glow of the sunset passed, and the night came, and still he lay, peacefully contented, Under the cold clear stars. End of section thirty two, section thirty three of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by h. g. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Beautiful Suit. There was once a little man whose mother made him a beautiful suit of clothes. It was green and gold, and woven so that I cannot describe how delicate and fine it was, and there was a tie of orange fluffiness that tied up under his chin, and the buttons in their newness shone like stars. He was proud and pleased by his suit beyond measure, and stood before the long looking glass when first he put it on so astonished and delighted with it that he could hardly turn himself away he wanted to wear it everywhere and show it to all sorts of people he thought over all the places he had ever visited and all the scenes he had ever heard described and tried to imagine what the feel of it would be if he were to go now to those scenes and places wearing his shining suit and he wanted to go out forthwith into the long grass and the hot sunshine of the meadow, wearing it, just to wear it. But his mother told him no. She told him he must take great care of his suit, for never would he have another nearly so fine. He must save it and save it, and only wear it on rare and great occasions. It was his wedding suit, she said, and she took the buttons and twisted them up with tissue paper for fear their bright newness should be tarnished and she tacked little guards over the cuffs and elbows and wherever the suit was most likely to come to harm he hated and resisted these things but what could he do and at last her warnings and persuasions had effect and he consented to take off his beautiful suit and fold it into its proper creases and put it away. It was almost as though he gave it up again. But he was always thinking of wearing it and of the supreme occasions when some day it might be worn without the guards, without the tissue paper on the buttons, utterly and delightfully never caring, beautiful beyond measure. One night when he was dreaming of it, after his habit, he dreamt he took the tissue paper from one of the buttons and found its brightness a little faded, and that distressed him mightily in his dream. He polished the poor faded button and polished it, and, if anything, it grew duller. He woke up and lay awake, thinking of the brightness a little dulled, and wondering how he would feel if, perhaps, when the great occasion, whatever it might be, should arrive, one button should chance to be ever so little short of its first glittering freshness and for days and days that thought remained with him distressingly and when next his mother let him wear his suit he was tempted and nearly gave way to the temptation just to fumble off one little bit of tissue paper and see if indeed the buttons were keeping as bright as ever he went trimly along on his way to church full of this wild desire for you must know his mother did with repeated and careful warnings let him wear his suit at times on sundays for example to and fro from church when there was no threatening of rain no dust blowing nor anything to injure it with its buttons covered and its protections tacked upon it and a sunshade in his hand to shadow it if there seemed too strong a sunlight for its colours and always after such occasions he brushed it over and folded it exquisitely as she had taught him and put it away again now all these restrictions his mother set to the wearing of his suit he obeyed always he obeyed them until one strange night he woke up and saw the moonlight shining outside his window it seemed to him The moonlight was not common moonlight, nor the night a common night. And for a while he lay quite drowsily with this odd persuasion in his mind. Thought joined on to thought, like things that whisper warmly in the shadows. Then he sat up in his little bed, suddenly very alert, with his heart beating very fast, and a quiver in his body from top to toe. He had made up his mind. He knew that now he was going to wear his suit as it should be worn. He had no doubt in the matter. He was afraid, terribly afraid, but glad, glad. He got out of his bed and stood for a moment by the window, looking at the moonshine-flooded garden, and trembling at the thing he meant to do. The air was full of a minute clamour of crickets and murmurings, of the infinitesimal shoutings of little living things he went very gently across the creaking boards for fear that he might wake the sleeping house to the big dark clothes-press wherein his beautiful suit lay folded and he took it out garment by garment and softly and very eagerly tore off its tissue paper covering and its tacked protections until there it was, perfect and delightful, as he had seen it when first his mother had given it to him. A long time, it seemed, ago. Not a button had tarnished, not a thread had faded on this dear suit of his. He was glad enough for weeping, as in a noiseless hurry he put it on, and then back he went, soft and quick, to the window that looked out upon the garden and stood there for a minute, shining in the moonlight, with his buttons twinkling like stars, before he got out on the sill, and, making as little of a rustling as he could, clambered down to the garden path below. He stood before his mother's house, and it was white, and nearly as plain as by day, with every window blind but his own, shut like an eye that sleeps, The trees cast still shadows like intricate black lace upon the wall. The garden in the moonlight was very different from the garden by day. Moonshine was tangled in the hedges and stretched in phantom cobwebs from spray to spray. Every flower was gleaming white or crimson black, and the air was a quiver with the thridding of small crickets. And nightingales singing unseen in the depths of the trees there was no darkness in the world but only warm mysterious shadows and all the leaves and spikes were edged and lined with iridescent jewels of dew the night was warmer than any night had ever been the heavens by some miracle at once vaster and nearer and spite of the great ivory tinted moon that ruled the world, the sky was full of stars. The little man did not shout nor sing for all his infinite gladness. He stood for a time like one awe-stricken, and then with a queer small cry and holding out his arms, he ran out as if he would embrace at once the whole round immensity of the world. He did not follow the neat set paths that cut the garden squarely, but thrust across the beds and through the wet tall scented herbs through the night stock and the nicotine and the clusters of phantom white mallow flowers and through the thickets of southernwood and lavender and knee-deep across a wide space of mignonette he came to the great hedge and he thrust his way through it and though the thorns of the brambles scored him deeply and tore threads from his wonderful suit and though burrs and goose-grass and havers caught and clung to him he did not care he did not care for he knew it was all part of the wearing for which he had longed i am glad i put on my suit he said i'm glad i wore my suit beyond the hedge he came to the duck-pond or at least to what was the duck-pond by day but by night it was a great bowl of silver moonshine all noisy with singing frogs of wonderful silver moonshine twisted and clotted with strange patternings and the little man ran down into its waters between the thin black rushes knee-deep and waist-deep and to his shoulders smiting the water to black and shining wavelets with either hand swaying and shivering wavelets, amidst which the stars were netted in the tangled reflections of the brooding trees upon the bank. He waded until he swam, and so he crossed the pond and came out upon the other side, trailing, as it seemed to him, not duckweed, but very silver in long, clinging, dripping masses, and up he went, Through the transfigured tangles of the willow herb And the uncut seeding grasses of the farther bank He came, glad and breathless, into the high road I am glad, he said, beyond measure that I had clothes that fitted this occasion The high road ran straight as an arrow flies Straight into the deep blue pit of sky beneath the moon a white and shining road between the singing nightingales and along it he went running now and leaping and now walking and rejoicing in the clothes his mother had made for him with tireless loving hands the road was deep in dust but that for him was only soft whiteness and as he went a great dim moth came fluttering round his wet and shimmering and hastening figure at first he did not heed the moth and then he waved his hands at it and made a sort of dance with it as it circled round his head soft moth he cried dear moth and wonderful night wonderful night of the world do you think my clothes are beautiful dear moth as beautiful as your scales and all this silver vesture of the earth and sky and the moth circled closer and closer until at last its velvet wings just brushed his lips and next morning they found him dead with his neck broken in the bottom of the stone pit with his beautiful clothes a little bloody and foul and stained with the duckweed from the pond but his face was a face of such happiness that had you seen it you would have understood indeed how that he had died happy never knowing that cool and streaming silver for the duckweed in the pond end of section 33 end of the country of the blind and other stories by hg wells
0: Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.